There was the Stop the Roof Depot demolition where the indigenous dominant neighborhood of East Phillips occupied a site that was supposed to be demolished by the city. They stopped the demolition, which would have put more toxins into the atmosphere. And they're trying to reclaim that site for not only the indigenous people who live in that community, but also for the non-indigenous people to reclaim it as a site for farming, sustainable farming, agriculture, and sort of local uh, businesses. There's also still the ongoing efforts to reclaim the Black Hills. And I think we're gonna see some more action around that in the coming years. It's an outstanding land claim uh, and it's not going away anytime soon. That's Nick Estes, and this is Alternative Radio. I'm David Barsamian. This edition of AR features Nick Estes, Wounded Knee to Standing Rock, Indigenous Resistance. In South Dakota in 1973, hundreds of Native American activists, led by members of the American Indian Movement, occupied the Pine Ridge Reservation village of Wounded Knee which was also the site of a notorious massacre in 1890 in which federal troops killed 300 Lakota men, women, and children. The months-long action in 1973 helped galvanize the movement for indigenous rights, which continues today. As the great historian Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz says, U.S. policies involving indigenous peoples have consistently been designed to disadvantage the indigenous, locking them into suppressed social status and codifying dependence on the U.S. government. Despite a history of oppression and genocide and continued discrimination, Native Americans are organizing and resisting. A younger generation of indigenous activists offers the promise of not just survival, but for a resurgence of indigenous societies and a renaissance of traditional culture. To talk about indigenous resistance is Nick Estes. He's a citizen of the Lower Brule Sioux Tribe. He's professor in the Department of American Indian Studies at the University of Minnesota. He's co-founder of the Red Nation. His articles appear in The Intercept, Jacobin, and Indian Country Today. He's the author of Our History is the Future and co-author of Standing with Standing Rock. I talked with Nick Estes in early May at the University of Denver. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me again, David. Well, it's the 50th anniversary of a historic event in Native America, the action at Wounded Knee. Talk about its significance and does it resonate today at all with Native peoples? Absolutely. In fact, this last February 27th, there was a 50th anniversary commemoration in which there was three days of powwows, dance competitions. There was an oral history project through the Warrior Women uh, Project documenting and really highlighting and foregrounding the role of American Indian women and their leadership within the Red Power Movement. And so in many ways, uh, it, is, it does resonate today because you have the children of the Red Power Movement who are leading today's movement, you know, whether it's the protests at Standing Rock, whether it's 
you know, line three, whether it's, you know, the, the attempts to get back uh, the Black Hills or Hesapa to the Lakota Nation, these are all generational struggles. And in many ways, the Red Power Movement and the legacy of Wundini uh, just continued. And when I interviewed some of the folks, um, the participants of Wundini, whether it was, you know, Madonna Thunderhawk, Bill Means, um, or even Richard Whitman, uh, or Lenny Foster, um, they're all elders now, but they, many of them say that, you know, Wounded Knee was just the beginning of something greater. But I think a lot of times in the public memory of the Wounded Knee occupation, it was sort of the end of a, a sort of militant red power movement. But in fact, according to the memory of the participants themselves, it was just the beginning of something greater. Because the next year you have the founding of the International Indian Treaty Council in Mobridge, South Dakota, you have the UN conference in 1977, and then you have the Black Hills gathering in 1980 that brought together thousands of, you know, white ranchers, farmers, and various environmental groups to protect the Black Hills. So in many ways, it, it was just the beginning. It, it was a transformational or a transition point from, I think, the more confrontational tactics to something to something different. And how does it connect, if at all, with the resistance at the Dakota Access Pipeline? It connects in many ways. I mean, for one, the people who were at Wounded Knee, the veterans of Wounded Knee, played active roles in Standing Rock. Folks like Clyde Belcourt, Madonna Thunderhawk, Bill Means, they were all there at the camps when I was there. I saw them all there. They were, in, some, in some instances, people like Phyllis Young, who was from Standing Rock, they were just doing what they, they do in these situations. They coordinate, they organize, they really push forward. Not just the sort of action-oriented, you know, locking down to equipment, but the organizing of camp life itself and the centering of treaties and the centering of indigenous sovereignty. And for the younger generation, uh, what is it like? And you are a part of that generation. Thanks. Somewhat, <laughs> yeah. How does the influence and the inspiration that is derived from having those kind of elders who live that history around? One thing that I always tell people is what I say and what I present isn't actually new. A lot of it is just repeating and building on the work that they did uh, when it comes to treaty rights, when it comes to like land back in the Black Hills, when it even comes to the Dakota Access Pipeline, those issues that were surrounding water and treaties were the issues they were fighting in their generation, right? And I don't think that they ever, you know, thought that they were going to resolve all those things. You know, that's why they created institutions like survival schools to train the next generation of children into understanding what treaty rights were and what indigenous sovereignty is. And so for somebody like myself, it took my own personal journey to discover these things. And part of the work that I'm doing in my own work is trying to elevate these histories because I think they're sort of taken for granted. The word sovereignty, the notion of land back, these are things like that even preceded the American Indian movement and the Red Power movement. But there isn't this sort of continuum or recognition of the continuum of those of that time period and the sacrifices that those people made for us to be having this conversation today. And talk about uh, Leonard Peltier, his now decades-long imprisonment. Uh, where does that stand, and why is his case significant? His case is significant for many reasons. Um, I think the primary reason and this goes back to Standing Rock, you know, I, I went to Washington, D.C. in the twilight months of Barack Obama's presidency, and there was an attempt to push for Leonard Peltier's clemency. And we thought we had a good chance because Standing Rock, you know, was kind of winding down. 
Um, but there was a, a greater consciousness around indigenous uh, issues in the indigenous movement. Um, but we, you know, we were we were mistaken, and I think part of it is that there is an ingrained institutional recalcitrance within the FBI, a vendetta, as one former FBI agent actually called it, an FBI family vendetta is actually what Colleen Rowley called it, against not just Leonard Peltier, but what he represented in terms of his participation within the American Indian movement. There are no active FBI agents who are working for the Bureau today that were alive or that were you know, working for the Bureau at the time of the shootout in 1975. But nonetheless, the FBI remains his, his most uh, entrenched opponent within, you know, the, the kind of broader U.S. government. Um, and so there is a saying, you know, when the march to Washington happened from, that was led by the American Indian Movement from Minneapolis to D.C. last fall, there was a saying that a lot of the, the walkers had was that we're not free until... Leonard Peltier is free. It means more than just his, his personal freedom. It means really looking and turning a critical eye to that period of history and what institutions like the FBI have done to suppress um, legitimate resistance movements, uh, re- legitimate indigenous-led movements, um, either in the 1970s, 1980s, 90s, 2000s, whatever, even to today. Because we are now seeing with the, rele- the release of a trove of documents that The Intercept and uh, the news publication The Grist uh, obtained, that there are still infiltrations, there are still mass surveillance of indigenous movements, there are still attempts to discredit uh, indigenous organizers and water protectors, both coming from the FBI and you know, the, the, law, the federal law enforcement agencies, as well this time from private security companies such as Tiger Swan. So that history is very much alive and well today. And I think one of the the primary demands of the Leonard Peltier Defense Committees is that not only is it asking for his release, but it's also asking for the release of those documents so that we can get a full picture of the kind of disruption um, that the FBI waged against that particular movement. And I think it's worth for, uh, for listeners to really consider all the revelations that are coming out right now of FBI infiltrators trying to instigate illegal, riotous activity in the Black Lives Matter uprisings in the, in the 2020s, um, but also how a, a, an FBI informant was leading the attack on the Capitol on January 6th. And now we find out that an FBI agent, we don't know if he was currently employed at the time with the agency, but was actually directly participating in the attack on the Capitol himself. So there's this history is very much alive and well today. I don't think that we really have a full understanding of what happened and what continues to happen. John Trudell, member activist of the American Indian Movement, used to say the FBI stood for the Federal Bureau of Intimidation. Well, since that, you know, over the last uh, 40, 50 years, there's been a marked uh, increase in surveillance and, and mechanisms of control. And how has that played out in terms of Native America? Well, I mean, it, it plays out in many ways. I, I think one of the biggest, um, I think, blemishes upon the FBI's and you know, the, the federal law enforcement agencies is they've, they've gotten records amounts of funding, but they can't, like, what is their solve rate for murdered missing indigenous women? Because reservations are federal jurisdiction. 
right? So if, if they've done such a great job over the years and they've been pumping so much money into these federal agencies, what are they actually doing? And we understand now that many of the times they're policing legitimate uh, movements uh, that are like trying to address poverty, housing, all kinds of land issues, environmental issues. But yet, nonetheless, there is an overemphasis on these indigenous-led and black-led movements and not really looking at, you know, the other sort of supposed functions that the FBI does. And I think the perfect example of this is, you know, going back to 1975, when you look at how many FBI agents were dedicated to the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation, the whole state of South Dakota probably has about two active FBI agents in their field office. At the, in 1975, right before the shootout, there were 30 dedicated FBI agents on the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation. Well, what was happening at that time? Well, the U.S. Uh, Civil Rights Division found that there was a so-called reign of terror where there were dozens of murders that happened of AIM supporters and people who were suspected of being AIM supporters. There were beatings, there were rapes, there were all the crimes that the FBI was supposed to be investigating. So the increase of FBI presence on the reservation had the inverse effect. I'm not trying to draw correlations here, but I mean, the increase of FBI presence on the reservation happened at a time when there was also an increase in violent crime. So why was that? And I think part of it, you know, part of the, the inquiry should lend itself that the FBI was playing the role as, as a political police force, not doing what, you know, these sort of major crimes under the Major Crimes Act, not doing what they're supposed to be doing. So that's a huge blemish, in my opinion, on, on the FBI. And, it, it, you know, that's just one reservation. Well, what was happening in these other instances, you know, with the, the Black Lives Matter uprising in, in 2020 after the police murder of George Floyd? You know, we see a lot of protesters getting a lot of, uh, you know, really high sentences, um, a lot of serious felony charges, some of them getting thrown out because they're so ridiculous. But, you know, even in the aftermath of the Dakota Access Pipeline, you have people like Jessica Reznicek who um, destroyed, admitted to destroying pipeline equipment from the Dakota Access Pipeline and then received terrorism enhancement charges the first time it was ever applied in a case as such, terrorism enhancement charges to her case, so now she's spending up to a decade in, in federal prison. And when you look at that in comparison to the sentencing of other kinds of cases, it's, it's disproportionate. Um, so we can see a clear bias and a clear emphasis on political policing versus the actual, even the normative function of what the FBI says it does, right? And so the FBI has, has supposed to reform, is supposed to have reformed itself after the church committee. And we know that's not the case, you know, even with, you know, 9-11. And then you have the, the, the creation of this massive security and, and, and surveillance apparatus during the so-called war on terror. Um, and this was right after the so-called Green Scare in the 90s, where the FBI was surveilling uh, environmental activists in some, in some instances and trapping them and doing to do, uh, you know, illegal activities, infiltrating uh, these movements. Um, and so we saw that happen through, you know, all the way up into Standing Rock and beyond, I'm sure. We don't know yet, I, I'm, but I'm sure that there will be in, you know, decades to come, maybe years to come, more evidence of this. And so this is now the new normal, not just for indigenous-led movements, but this is the new normal for any movement in the United States, any legitimate protest movement. Like, 
the FBI was surveilling, uh, I think in, a, in, a, in Atlanta, Georgia, they were surveilling a coffee shop because it had a Black Lives Matter sign, <laughs> you know? Um, and, and I think Americans, people who live in this country, has to ask, have to ask themselves when they look out on the street and they see all these people with, without homes, you know, suffering from this kind of economy and wonder why so much money is being invested into domestic surveillance of activists. You're based now in Minnesota, not, that, not too far from uh, our northern neighbor, Canada, which has had an epidemic of uh, attacks on uh, women being killed, raped, disappeared in some instances. Uh, what's going on there? And, and uh, comment, if you will, on the Pope's <laughs> recent uh, trip to Canada and the declaration he made, kind of a public apology. Yeah, there was an investigation through the United Nations that was investigating murdered, missing Indigenous women, uh, but also murdered, missing Indigenous relatives. And that found that, you know, th this could amount to genocide. And the perpetrators of this are, are varying. It could be everyday settlers, it could be state institutions. And in fact, there's some studies that have found that uh, Native women and children who are going through state foster care systems or put into uh, the Canadian social service systems are actually their risks, their risk factor goes up for violence against them. And so there's there's attempts right now to study what are the root causes of this and why is it that somebody going through a, you know, a social service program that should ostensibly help them, why is it making them more at risk for, for violent behavior, violent predatory behavior? Um, that's one aspect. I think the other aspect with the Pope's visit and his apology that he issued to the survivors of the residential schools that were run by the Catholic Church, it shows how the Canadian government, the Crown, and the Pope have attempted to make amends, so to speak, for these, these historical wrongs. I think it's fascinating that in light of that apology, there hasn't been a lot of press around how many children are still being discovered in these mass graves because it's, it's in the thousands now and it's, it's going to continue to grow and grow and grow. And the apology is, you know, um, Chris Peters, who I, who I spoke with the other day from the Seventh Generation Fund, said is, is, is worthless because it doesn't actually transfer power. It doesn't change the relationship that the Canadian government has to, its, to indigenous people, nor does it change the, the, if there was an apology issue, which there was by, by Obama, in 2011, it doesn't ch if there, it doesn't change the relationship that the federal government has with American Indian nations, and even the repudiation of the doctrine of discovery, which happened just before Easter, um, by uh, the Vatican, doesn't actually fundamentally change the use of that doctrine within federal Indian law. Explain what the doctrine of sure. discovery was. So the doctrine of D discovery came from a Supreme Court case in 1823 called Jans Johnson v. McIntosh, and it was trying to determine the standing of indigenous nations that were circumscribed by the borders of the United States or potentially in relationship to the United States. Well, first of all, Native people were not citizens, so the Cherokee Nation, who was one of the, the kind of the shadow plaintiff in this case, um, couldn't actually stand trial in the Supreme Court. So they had to do it through a proxy. John Marshall, the Chief Justice at the time, determined that the United States inherited from other European colonizing powers the doctrine of discovery, which was 15th century papal bull. Um, 
the United States, as far as I, I know, is like the only nation in the modern world that actually ha uses the doctrine of discovery as a, as a legal premise for its relationship, still uses, I should say, as a legal premise for its relationship to uh, indigenous nations. And isn't it based on terra, the idea of terra nullis? Well, actually, that, that comes from a different kind of principle. But the doctrine of discovery just basically means it allows uh, Christian nations to colonize, to enslave, and to take the land of non-Christian peoples, right? It was a legal justification. Um, and as many scholars have pointed out, it's, it's a complete fabrication. J uh, Chief Justice John Marshall literally made it up on the spot. The church didn't even recognize it at the time. So when the church issued its repudiation, in its so-called repudiation, it, it said that, oh, well, we never recognized this as church doctrine, so we, don't know, we can't control what the government of the United States is doing. But even though they used that to pillage not only North America, but also to pillage the nations of you know, Mesoamerica and South America and the Caribbean. And so all that gold that you see in all these these photographs of the Pope and his thrones and his, you know, his opulence that comes from the mines of South America, you know, the veins of Latin America. And the Holy See is also the largest non-governmental landowner in the world. And so when we talk about things like repar reparations, why isn't there a transfer of wealth? Why isn't there a transfer of land? All we get are apologies and so-called repudiations. 1823 also marks the Monroe Doctrine. How did that um, affect Native peoples? In, well, actually in 1893, on the eve of the U.S. war with Spain, Frederick Jackson Tur uh, Turner, you know, in a lesser-known speech, he was famous for the, the so-called frontier thesis. In a lesser-known speech, he talked about the this is a quote, the germ of the Monroe Doctrine was created in the Ohio Valley, meaning that these white settlers after the American Revolution in 1776 rushed in there to try to claim the land because that was the original intent of the United States was to expand westward, to emancipate themselves from the, the crown or whatever, but then to eventually expand westward. And so when you have, I think it's coincidental, I don't think there was like any kind of conspiracy involved in terms of the Monroe Doctrine and uh, the Doctrine of Discovery. They just happened to fall in the same, the same year. But the importance of it, though, is that when Monroe, uh, President Monroe was making that speech, he was really drawing from uh, the so-called founders of the United States, people like Thomas Jefferson and Alexander Hamilton. And during the drafting of the, Con the U.S. Constitution, Alexander, uh, Alexander Hamilton said specifically that they, the United States needed a strong central federal military that could be funded through the levy of taxes because they faced two enemies. The first was other European powers, Spain, Britain, and France, and the other were powerful indigenous nations in the West. That's why Thomas Jefferson wrote in the Declaration of Independence, Merciless Indian Savages on our Western frontier. It was almost like a declaration of war of what the United States would be. And so when you have the codification of the doctrine of discovery within federal Indian law, it turns, you know, over a course of federal cases, it turns native nations into domestic dependents, right? But there's also a treaty process to bind, uh, you know, that's what um, 
that's what uh, uh, Jefferson used, the language of binding indigenous nations to the United States, to peel them away from other European powers so that the United States could assert, assert hegemony within North America as it expanded westward. That's the same mentality and ideology of the, of the Monroe Doctrine, to bind Latin American nations to the United States, to make them compliant. And we saw the bloody evidence of this in terms of how it unfolded over the last 200 years with countless U.S. back coups, all the way up into, you know, I mean, ongoing sanctions against Venezuela, the half-century blockade of Cuba, the continued interventions in Latin America, the propping up of right-wing dictatorships, the U.S.-backed overthrow of Pedro Castillo, the president, the democratically elected president of Peru, the, you know, the U.S.-backed coup of Evo Morales, like it goes on and on and on. So uh, the Monroe Doctrine is very much alive and well today. And so I think it's incumbent upon us as people who look critically on this, like both federal Indian policy and U.S. imperialism, because they're interlinked, that we have to bury both doctrines, both the Monroe Doctrine and both the doctrine of discovery to fully reintegrate the Western Hemisphere um, so that we have the right to interact with our relatives in the South. You know, we're not mediated by these, you know, imperialist doctrines. And talk about the, the idea of settler colonialism, as Roxanne Dunbar Ortiz does, as Eduardo Galeano does, and others. Uh, does it have much resonance among non-native peoples? Oh, absolutely. I, I think it's so well understood that it's not even recognized. How do you explain to a fish that it's swimming in water? I think that's the perfection of that ideology within the United States, that A, that nothing came before, there was nothing here before, and that it's only the United States that can exist here, you know, um, in, in its sole kind of formation right now. That's the biggest challenge right now. You know, this is a battle of ideas over how we understand what it means to be, to live in this hemisphere uh, and what it means to live, live in this country and its founding. So 100%, I believe, that people understand it. They may not call it that, but they definitely act it out in their daily practices and how they think about their place in this country. One of the biggest countries in the Western Hemisphere is, of course, Brazil. Mm -hmm. Bolsonaro is out. Lula is in. Uh, what has happened to the indigenous movements in, in Brazil? Um, well, I know that at the tail end of the Bolsonaro presidency, there was an attempt to overturn certain uh, pieces of legislation to change parts of the Constitution, as well as to overturn certain court decisions to reverse the already limited protections that Native people have. They don't have a reservation-based system like they do here in the United States. So there was a mass mobilization uh, several years ago. Uh, they were basically calling it their kind of standing rock, where thousands of uh, Native people, they you know came to the Brasilia, the capital, and they had a giant coffin that they brought to <laughs> the National Assembly. Uh, and now compare that sort of protest, which... Um, there was a lot of peace, police presence, but it was, for the most part, nonviolent. It didn't you know, advocate for anything other than raising attention and raising the issue around indigenous rights. Compare that to after Bolsonaro was ousted from office and the sort of failed copy of the January 6th uprising that they had with the Bolsonaristas and they took over the capital and tried to destroy it. Well, that was on January 8th, actually. Yeah, was, yeah the, that was January 8th. This is how they treat that sort of movement, that sort of reaction, this is how they treat the landless workers movement. 
This is how they treat indigenous people. This is how they treat the Quilambos, the Afro-descendant people who are in the forest. The Amazon rainforest is actually 50% black. Um, and you know there are presence of indigenous people, but they are all forest defenders. They are all land defenders, and they see themselves as connected to these other movements. And I know that the, the uh, Lula presidency has gotten a lot of their support. Um, and I remember when I was there, some of the people I met, the, um, the leaders of the indigenous movement I met, they were at his inauguration. So they were front and center. Their, the rights of indigenous people were recognized, but we'll have to see in, in how much the United States wants to allow and you know, how much they want to allow their sort of doctor, or their, their, their doctrinaire mentality around the Monroe Doctrine to allow these people self-determination and to continue to check these powerful corporate interests because Brazil is facing its own sort of crisis in terms of it's producing more, it's producing more, it's feeding the world, right? It's, I think 30% of the food comes from Brazil, but yet it still has hunger in its country. And that's because of these ideologies of the Monroe Doctrine where it's feeding the cattle in our country, you know, with its soy production. I think as Americans and even as American Indians that we have to think about in northern Minnesota as well, there's uh, the headquarters of Cargill, which is dotting all over the Amazon rainforest. And in some instances in the past, it's been known that they partnered with these very violent uh, militias to kill and to harass and terrorize indigenous people, Quilambos, as well as uh, the people who live in the forest and protect it. So there's a, there's a broader social transformation that needs to take place in, in Brazil, but we're seeing the sort of seeds of that being laid right now and the breathing room that somebody like Lula da Silva provides. You're listening to Nick Estes, Wounded Knee to Standing Rock, Indigenous Resistance. This is Independent Alternative Radio. For copies of this program, Call us at 1-800-444-1977. Again, that's 1-800-444-1977. Or go online, our website, alternativeradio.org. That's alternativeradio.org. What would be maybe at the top of your list of things that must be done and that can be done, solutions? I think the first question is always land back. That seems unimaginable to a lot of people, but there's been land reform throughout various histories in Latin America. Not all of it has been perfect, but the United States hasn't undergone land reform whatsoever. That is the primary concern of a lot of indigenous people because that's where our economies are tied. That's where all of the social issues that we face today are always tied to the land. That, before anything else, has to come first. And is there any movement in that direction? Absolutely. There's urban, you know, in the city that I live, there was the Stop the Roof Depot demolition where the indigenous dominant neighborhood of East Phillips occupied a site that was supposed to be demolished by the city. They stopped the demolition, which would have put more toxins into the atmosphere. And they're trying to reclaim that site for not only the indigenous people who live in that community, but also for the non-indigenous people to reclaim it as a site for farming, sustainable farming, agriculture, and sort of local uh, businesses. There's also still the ongoing efforts to reclaim the Black Hills, and I think we're going to see some more action around that in the coming years. It's an outstanding land claim, uh, and it's not going away anytime soon. Where do you stand on this whole issue of uh, 
reform versus radical change? Mm -hmm. You know, do you believe in uh, incremental improvements, or do you feel that you know the times demand radical, substantive change? I don't think it's uh, it's an either or. I think it's both because there are certain things that can make the quality of life of people here in this country, in this planet, like much more livable through just minor reforms. And that can be a way to show, like, you know, when we were talking earlier about winning these victories, like if you change a mascot, abolish the Washington football team mascot, if you change the mascot for the Cleveland Indians, those are huge shifts. But it's also like you're building a movement and that raises the psychological, it has a psychological effect. So when you make these minor reforms, it shows that things are achievable and winnable. But even when you lose those minor reforms, you still have, hopefully, an organization, a network of people who you know will be trying to build for something bigger and better. The current landscape is issue-based. We're taught to be issue-based activists, issue-based focused, and not look at broader picture. You know, And so I think both are possible um, to look at these issue base and understand that these are local struggles, like whether it's a pipeline, we didn't stop the Dakota Access Pipeline, but nonetheless, it was a win. It was part of a longer struggle to radically transform our carbon economy. But you also have to be fighting for alternatives that don't just simply, oh, we're going to replace this with a green economy. That's still going to require the same kind of colonial relationship to now, instead of extracting oil, we're going to extract lithium from your lands, Right. We do need those materials to transition, but it has to be negotiated and it has to be on the terms of the people who are most impacted. That's the reform side. The radical side, they always say the horizon of struggle. Why do they say the horizon of struggle? Because as as you approach the horizon, it keeps going further and further and further into the distance. If you don't have that dialectical thinking about the future and how history actually works, you might arrive somewhere and think that that's an okay place to be, but hu- that's not reflective of human nature. Human nature is constantly evolving. Human culture is constantly evolving. There are always things, inequities within our, ourselves, our, our relationships to each other, as well as the land that need to be resolved. However, that transformation, when they say revolution, it's not an instantaneous thing. It's something that unfolds over generations. The UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres has in very bold terms talked about the climate crisis we're facing, using phrases like time is running out, the clock is ticking, etc. What are your views on the climate crisis? And can this system be nimble enough to address it in a way that will not, you know, cause widespread chaos, which is looming? It's a good question. I'm not a a sage in terms of I can't predict the future, but I can tell you what's happening now. We are experiencing the effects of carbon that was put into the atmosphere generations ago. So if we think about what we're putting in today, how bad the, the the changes in the weather have happened just in our current moment, think about we're we're exponentially greater than, you know, than what was put out, you know, generations ago. So if we're thinking about it in those terms, it paints a very bleak picture, right? But I also think that there are trends that I think are important. But if we look globally and we look at, you know, even the COP, the COP meetings, these are the, it's usually dominated by the North Atlantic nations or, you know, the NATO nations, whatever you want to call it. 
And they all followed a path of development that required an immense amount of carbon input that the rest of the world is paying for. So therefore, if the rest of the world is paying for that amount of carbon that these nations, these so-called first world nations, produced and emitted to build their societies at the expense, not just of you know the people that they colonized, but also the future generations, then those nations also owe in perpetuity reparations to the people who are also trying to develop because they can't develop along the same trajectory using and emitting the same carbon, right? India is now the most populous country in the world and it's building coal fire power plant after coal fire power plant. And you see in the New York Times, you see in all these Western uh, media sources talking about the immense amount of pollution that's going to be required. This isn't India's problem. This is a first world problem because the first world colonized the atmosphere with their carbon pollution so that they could develop along the same lines. And now they're saying, no, the third world can't develop that, that, that same way. It's not to say that there are alternatives that don't exist. There are, but we also have to remove the sort of restrictions on technology transfers for green, sustainable energy, right? And a lot of the patents are the held, most of them are held by China, but a lot of them are held by the United States. And so when we talk about climate change, we're talking about a, a, a global project in the context of the United States and Canada, indigenous-led movements, a report from 2021 found uh, that was authored by Indigenous Environmental Network that indigenous-led movements in Canada and the United States against carbon infrastructure and extraction, as well as uh, greenhouse gra- gas emission, accounted for a quarter, challenging a quarter of emissions from both Canada and the United States. Indigenous-led movements essentially are challenging quarter of carbon emissions from Canada and the United States. That's a huge amount, like especially given the fact that we're like around 1%, 2% of the population, uh, it's higher in Canada, but it shows you the effectiveness of those kinds of movements and promoting a carbon-free future. However, we live in a country that is constantly at war, that is pushing a war in Ukraine so that essentially can strong-arm rob Russia from it's gas and energy contracts with with Europe, but that gas and that energy has to come from somewhere. So what did Biden do in his in the approval of the Willow Project? He said this is for national security because we need to supply. We have to make up the deficit for Russian oil going to Europe because they are no longer able to to buy gas as cheaply, right? And we saw this. So not only do these movements have to be looking at this broader sort of critique of the of the environment and the pollution and third world development, but they also have to be anti-imperialist and opposing these wars and understanding that these resource wars and these energy wars disproportionately impact marginalized communities. Talk about daily life on the res. What's it like? Well, so I, I've only lived on the res for maybe like two or three years consecutively in my life. Um, I didn't grow up there. I visited quite a bit, but I, and so I can't speak, I can't speak to that experience. However, I would just say that like, um, I'll just give you some examples. Like during this last winter storm, which was really bad, all of the reservation roads were plowed because the priority was around public safety. As soon as you got to the state line, the, the governor of South Dakota, Christine Ohm, 
and the Department of Transportation didn't plow the roads. You had people in Rosebud, South Dakota, burning clothes because they, their roads weren't plowed by the state for almost five days. People died. The life expectancy of American Indian people during uh, following the COVID-19 pandemic, which we're still sort of in, and we are in some ways, but it dropped by, I think it was 6 point, or is it, yeah, 6.9 years, which is massive. If we saw this happen in a different country, to a different demographic, there would be some sort of NGO going in advocating for the overthrow of the government or saying that it's some sort of genocide, but it's been relatively silent. And the studies that have come out about this decline in life expectancy, which is much worse for Native American males than it is for, for women where people are identified as women, this does account for COVID death and comorbidities, but it's the pattern is still continuing. And it's because, I believe, uh, and we're seeing this across other demographics, a declining standard of living in the United States. And so that, that disproportionately impacts the people who are at the bottom, which in, you know, includes indigenous people. So I just want to, I want to point out those two examples because also Native people had the high, some of the highest rates of vaccination, especially on the reservations. So there, there was a, an understanding, even though the reservations are often seen as these kind of rural, isolated pockets of poverty, life is, is prioritized for the collective good when it can be, when the resources are there to plow roads and to administer vaccines. But we are underfunded, you know, not just on reservations, but across the board. And that's a direct result of, of colonialism. And we have not had a single administration who has adequately addressed this. And the question is now, is do we keep depending on the federal government and keep going to the federal government? The Pope has repudiated the doctrine of discovery, but the United States still acts like a colonial power. That's the question that we have to ask ourselves. Is this, is this a system that's worth sustaining? Because it's, it's not only killing us at high rates, it's now killing everyday Americans at high rates. And what about uh, neoliberalism, which was introduced in the late 70s, early 80s? Has that had a particular impact on Native peoples? So it, it has. I mean, I don't want to like I don't want to glorify the past Bureau of Indian Affairs, but it used to be centralized. It used to be a central system uh, for better or worse. But every tribe was guaranteed a similar access or equitable access to health care, for example, or other kind of services, education, which we know resulted in boarding schools and things like that. But following Nixon's declaration of self de self-determination, that basically turned tribes into nonprofits who were competing for an allocated pool of money through the federal system. And much like nonprofits complete for funding for grants and things like that, now their healthcare systems, their clinics, their domestic violence shelters, their police departments, their hospitals, their roads, everything is now in a competition with other tribes. That's the market correcting itself according to neoliberalism. It didn't necessarily privatize the assets of, of tribes, but it turned them into entities that were competing with other tribes instead of equitably reallocating resources. Now the question though is more, less about this uh, tribal system that was put into place with self-determination uh, and more about the fact that the United States has consistently used the trust funds that it has acquired through treaties uh, to not only dispossess tribes while paying for you know these boarding schools that were 
that Native children were sent to. This wasn't coming out of taxpayers' dollars. This was coming from land ceded. This was a this was a contractual negotiation by tribes with the federal government. Now we're seeing that happen with healthcare, and now with under you know even under democratic controlled congresses and you know whatever, they still act as if they're giving us a handout. And it says no, this is a treaty obligation. You made these treaties, you know, they're, they're newer, they're, they're younger than the U.S. Constitution. So you're obligated to, to uphold them. But instead, they're treating them as like, oh, here's a grant that you can apply for. And maybe you want to build a domestic violence shelter or, you know, we have all these law enforcement grants that you can get. It's easier to build a, a juvenile detention facility than it is to build a domestic violence shelter. The last I checked, there were about maybe two domestic violence shelters on Indian reservations that were that were tribally run. That's not very many, considering murder and missing Indigenous women, considering you know the crisis of, of violence against women and families on reservations, but also the inadequacy of schools. So the priority has followed you know larger national trends in taking what should be the, for the betterment of social welfare through education, you know, adequate healthcare, access to healthy foods, you know, just standards, good quality standards of living are now being allocated. The solution is, oh, we just need more policing. We need more law enforcement because in the United States under neoliberalism, you only have a hammer and everything looks like a nail. So everything is solvable by increasing police funding, increasing incarceration. You've taught and lived in New Mexico and now you're in Minnesota. Can you compare the two? (laughs) Spice. One one has it, the other one lacks it. <laughs> but, but both have large uh, indigenous populations. So, yeah, yes and no. I would say that the indigenous population of, of New Mexico is much more visible and larger. And I would actually say that the relationships, I mean, for better or worse, you know, with between the state and the tribes is better in New Mexico than it is in Minnesota. Because you have to remember, Minnesota was founded and sort of consolidated itself with the U.S. Dakota War. It was, it was a genocide and expulsion of Dakota people from, the, from their homelands in Minnesota. And they've never been allowed to return. So, and also Winnebago, or excuse me, a Ho-Chunk people as well. Not to say that New Mexico doesn't have its own faults, but that's the mentality of, of Minnesota. You have, just like in, in New Mexico, things named after conquistadors, in Minnesota, you have things named after people like Sibley or Ramsey or Hennepin, uh, people who were foundational to not only the dispossession of Dakota people and Ojibwe people, but also the architects of Dakota genocide and expulsion being named after things. It's like, imagine uh, the Soviets didn't liberate Germany. What would not? What would the Nazi regime look like? It would be adoration for the architects of genocide and the Holocaust. That's what Minnesota is, and it's proud of its heritage, which is extremely disconcerting, especially given the fact that it tends to be a liberal, or at least it fashions itself as a liberal kind of left-leaning state. But it has this very intense form of settler colonialism that you just don't experience in a place like New Mexico. And I'll give you one example. It's the university I work out, work at. This last semester, there was a report issued called the Truth Report, which, which, 
which was written by three uh, graduate students, Anne Gary Gola, um, Adriana Goodwin, and uh, Misty Blue. And they, they worked with different re- represent, uh, scholars from the, uh, the various tribes that are still remaining within the state. I think there's 13 fellows. And they wrote a report that documented how when the university was founded, it used the funds that it made from the seizures of mostly Dakota land and put it into its permanent university fund. That permanent university fund became the starting capital, not just for the University of Minnesota, but it became the starting capital for the state of Minnesota because the people who were sitting on the original Board of Regents were the governor, Alexander Ramsey, and many of the architects of the Dakota genocide. So they used the university as a sort of pot of money. And they've tracked this fund not only went to university activities for the betterment, you know, as a land grant institution, um, for the betterment of, you know, the state of Minnesota, but it was also that money was used, it was bonded out to municipalities to build a road, to build a bridge, to, to improve the quality of life of the settler population there. And so this money, which is blood money, essentially, the university has been sitting on this and has now cut my department. They've cut our budgets. They're squeezing our resources. We're the oldest American Indian Studies Department in the country. Founded in 1969, we've had a Dakota language program and Ojibwe language program going back to like the early 60s, maybe even earlier than that. And those are the, the, the Dakota language program is actually hit by these budget cuts. This is the mentality. Like even in light of this very damning report, which made headlines in NBC News that said that the University of Minnesota profited from genocide, they still have the audacity to cut the very programs that keep Native students, not only within the university system, but in the state itself. You know, they may say very nice things. You know, we might have like people appointed representatives, Natives in, you know, this position or that position, but in actual practice, that mentality, that settler mentality still exists that they don't owe us a penny. I joked with my department, I said, we should just take a bond out from this permanent university fund and not pay it back. But you can't do that. That's illegal. But um, that's that's the mentality. And I think the a state like the universe, uh, the state, a state like Minnesota needs to look, take a hard look at itself and understand that it's not just the land that it took, but it took generations of wealth away from native people, especially Dakota people, people who I'm descendant from, who live in some of the poorest counties in places like, you know, Crow Creek or, uh, you know, elsewhere, that those are the the original people who are from Minnesota. And you look at the, the University of Minnesota, top research one, you know, university, you have the Mayo Clinic there, you have all these Fortune 500 companies concentrated into that one area, extremely, extremely wealthy. And you look within that city itself and you look at the native community, and they're one of the most impoverished communities just in the city. So that mentality, uh, that brutal legacy of settler colonialism still lives on to this day in a place like Minnesota. And that's why I, I bristle at the idea of a Minnesota nice. <laughs> well, you and your allies are pushing back and exposing these hypocrisies. Absolutely. And I just want to give, I think I might have mentioned this earlier, but I just want to give props to the East Phillips neighborhood and the Little Earth uh, United Tribes community for coming together and stopping the city from demolishing a toxic uh, site. Uh, it's a huge win. And so that's that's a bright spot, you know, I think 
there and all, you know, all my colleagues, American Indian Studies, all of our previous faculty, all of the alumni who came through um, that institution, you know, one of the, the uh, signature community radio stations, McGeezy, was started at the University of Minnesota by U- UMN um, uh, students. And one of them was actually uh, one of the first graduates of the American Indian Studies Department. So that legacy lives on. And even if they cut our resources, we'll still be doing what we're doing. And who has inspired and influenced your intellectual development and your activism? I think the first person who ever articulated it in a way that made sense to me was Vijay Prashad. He taught me that the intellectual can serve many roles. Intellectual isn't necessarily a radical thing, uh, something that has to be shaped and you know, but also knowledge that's produced by social movements is legitimate knowledge. And I was doing this work the entire time, but he was the first to say it. But but I also turned to uh, more kind of grassroots people like I think Bill Means has had a, a major impact on my thinking. Um, but he was one of the founders of the, Ameri- the International Indian Treaty Council in 1974. Madonna Thunderhawk, of course, I think her kind of just spirit of resistance. And she said something to me um, that always sticks with me. She was asked, at a panel one time during the showing of her documentary, The Warrior Women, she was asked by a student, young student, who said, why did you do everything that you did? Why did you go out and sacrifice the relationships with your own family to to be a part of the American Indian movement? She said, because I wanted to be remembered as a good ancestor to future generations, that they would look back at this time period and look at, you know, they inherited a mess, but they knew that there were people out there who were fighting for the future. And so that's what I believe what makes a good scholar, what makes a good activist, is somebody who's trying to be a good ancestor to future generations. Thanks very much for your time. Thanks, David. You were just listening to Nick Estes, Wounded Knee to Standing Rock, Indigenous Resistance. I talked with him in early May at the University of Denver. Nick Estes is professor in the Department of American Indian Studies at the University of Minnesota, and he is co-founder of the Red Nation. This program is produced by Alternative Radio based in Boulder, Colorado. We are an independent nonprofit in our 37th year. We're supported solely by individuals just like you. We feature voices rarely heard in the corporate media, such as Noam Chomsky, Medea Benjamin, Arundhati Roy, and Chris Hedges. To access our complete audio and book catalog, just go to our website, alternativeradio.org. Again, our website where we are podcasting, alternativeradio.org. For copies of today's program, Nick Estes, Wounded Knee to Standing Rock, Indigenous Resistance, and for Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz's classic book, An Indigenous People's History of the United States, just call us, 1-800-444-1977. That's 1-800-444-1977. Or you can go online, our website, alternativeradio.org. That's alternativeradio.org. Printed transcripts, PDFs, and MP3s of this program are free of charge. Just call us, 1-800-444-1977. We go out with Bring Him Out by Aeneas Lacey with John Trudell and Steve Robidoux.
Pine Ridge Indian Reservation in South Dakota. The government with the FBI, they were waging a contra war against now all of the AIM people and traditionalists. Anytime any grassroots or anytime any group of people start to get popular support, this becomes a threat to the government. Compelled too, then that's when they kind of just put the finishing touches on the momentum that AIM had.